0: So we came on the podcast today, Joel, Rosemary checked in, and her first comment was about the sweater I'm wearing. It took like maybe five (laughs) seconds before she's on top of me about my sweater. It's beautiful, Ellen. It's beautiful.
1: It's a beautiful cardigan. It's not a sweater. It's a cardigan. It's fantastic. It's a cardigan, right? There you go.
0: And I'm near the whaling territory of America, right? This (laughs) is sort of like what the whalers used to wear. It's cold in Massachusetts. It's (laughs) awful. And it's wet, too. It's awful.
1: If you're new to the podcast, what you'll understand from that comment is that Rosemary usually doesn't have a filter. She's going to tell you how it is and what she feels. And that's why we love her. Yeah.
0: So that's this is a really fun episode because Rosemary is completely filterless this week. Uh, and we're going to talk about Aronis over at Latvia, uh Talking about really going after a big marketplace. So they're going to be doing leading edge repairs with Axonobel Noble uh, as the sealant fix to keep those leading edges clean and making power. Then we then we shift gears over to New York State. And there's a lot happening offshore in New York State uh, with the New York State bid process, all the companies that are just offshore uh, trying to make bids into the state. The state's only looking for two gigawatts and there's a lot more power offshore than two gigawatts at the moment. So there's a, a bunch of shuffling, including GE proposing to, to build two new facilities in New York State, a new Blade facility with LM Wind Power And then a cell facility right next door. A lot of action there.
1: We're also going to talk about Iberdrola. So for the technicians in the field that may be working on one wind farm and uh, they come to work the next day and it's owned by someone else. Uh, what we see is that with the availability of capital for further developments, that's going to become more commonplace. And Iberdrola is making some big moves um, to shift around their capital base to, to put some more uh, renewable energy in the ground. That's actually – that's what we're thinking. Right? We don't work for Iberdrola, so we don't know. Uh, and then we're going to get back to Rosemary – talking, uh, l- l- losing her filter a little bit, talking about core and some sustainable steel <laughs> and some, some efforts they're doing in Kentucky here in the United States, uh, to support our offshore wind, uh, developments, which, uh, we all like to see, uh, U.S. manufacturing jobs, U.S. materials going into, uh, what we put forth, uh, for the energy transition. Uh, we're going to talk about ACP a little bit and what they're talking uh, about and some of their opinions on, um, manning the offshore wind, uh, Uh, wind farms that are being built. So stay tuned for that one. And then uh, we're also going to uh, debut a new uh, piece of the show that we like to do, the wind farm of the week. So we're going to talk about some of the fantastic wind turbine technicians uh, and O&M personnel uh, doing a repower out in Iowa uh, on a great wind farm. So stay
0: tuned. I'm Alan Hall, president of Weather Guard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxham and the soon-to-be guest host of the Fully Charged Live event in Australia, Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Well, big excitement up in Latvia this week because Aronis has announced a new modular robot for leading edge repair. And Joel, if you had watched the YouTube video, there was a big pronouncement. Danis was there and Giannis were there uh, showing this sort of modular robot that does a number of different tasks uh, to repair leading edges. And they said they can repair leading edges up to level three damage, which is decently severe. And they were also talking about Level fours and fives, they could at least temporarily uh, cover it, and <laughs> maybe delay the inevitable um, technician repair. But it, the robot does a couple of things. So it, it cleans the surface, it preps the surface, right? <clears throat> it has to grind off any sort of tape or existing tape that's on there, uh, primers it, fills it, and smooths it. Wow. Um, but it, the, the the little piece they were talking about that I – that was interesting. They, they said this is a modular approach. So I, I don't know if they've just taken existing uh, pieces and and plugged them in to, to make this leading edge fixing robot work. The, the the big announcement when and there was a big announcement because they have partnered with Axel Noble for the material to coat the leading edge, and Axel Noble has been working in that space for a little while, trying to come up with solutions. So it's a it's an interesting concept, and I, I think. Leading edge repair is the big repair uh, industry at the moment, right? I mean, that's where all the the emphasis is. Yeah, there's a couple of companies in the robotic space that
1: are working on projects to do some different kinds of repairs. That's tough, right? You're getting into things that are – and that's why there's technicians that do them because not one of them is cookie cutter. None of them are the same. Every single one of them is different. When you get to leading edge – it's a process that you can replicate, right? You may overdo it a little bit because when you're doing a leading edge, it's not always you don't need to do a hundred percent of that stretch, right? If you're working on the, the the you know four meters, six meters, eight meters, ten meters, whatever in that that heavy erosion zone, or if you get some chipping, some peeling, you don't always need to fix every single meter of it or every single you know like little inch of it. But they you know with the robot you will but that eventually will give you a better uh, coating as well. So uh, I guess when you say modular, I like the approach because, uh, you know, some of the other robotic companies in the space are doing the same thing. Blade Bug, they're saying the same thing, modular. And the idea is today we can do leading edge, tomorrow, who knows? We may be able to apply an anti-icing coating. We may be able to actually do a scarfed repair. You know, we can put maybe that it's modular, we can put on – uh, a coating that is uh, liquid coating. Maybe next year we're doing uh, 3M tape coating or whatever it is. So the modular approach is smart in robotics. No matter where you're working, you know. Think about s- subsea; it's just tools and different things. It's all modular. Uh, very, very smart. So I guess the the thing I would I'm curious about is if it is a modular approach and they're gonna you know you're gonna sand, you're gonna prep you're going to put filler in and then you're going to put finally put your coating and maybe a top coat or something. There's three, four, five steps there. Are they doing anything to do some of those at once, right? Because now you're you're starting to fight. the idea is, can you beat a team of technicians um, in quality and speed? And if you have five different processes to do, you might not be able to do that. Uh, you know what I mean? So if you have to sand it, that's one thing. And then you got to do a tool change and then you have to do this. And so every time you have to do a tool change and do another run up and down the blade or, or however that works for their process, there's some time there. So as long as they can beat that time and do it well, it's, that's fantastic. I mean cat three, you're down into, you're almost a substrate, right? So once you get past right. cat three, then you start to get structural and you start to, have to actually have to build up some repair in there. Uh, you know, I've seen, we've all seen those leading edge stories where someone could stick their fist through a hole. Uh, I hope they're not planning on just putting filler over the top of something like that and just, uh, that wouldn't be good. Uh, Spackle but over the guys Spackle, there do, yeah, 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 there you go. The guys do a great <laughs> job over there at Arona's, so um, I'm sure they've thought of all these things.
0: Yeah, so Arona's has been working on anti-ice coating application with Nine Ice for probably six months or more. We saw them over in Hamburg, Joel. They had Nine yeah. Ice yeah. there, and we're talking that up before the, the winter season. Uh, but one of the key points that Aronis is pointing out is that technicians can typically be on a blade when it's like eight, nine meters a second of wind. Mm-hmm. But the robot can be up there in 15 meters per second wind, which means you have a larger operating window to do a repair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes a little more sense. But the only thing I worry about is fixing lineage erosion is hard a difficult task. And once you get out in the field, it's not like being in the laboratory. And if anybody knows that, Aronis knows that because they've been doing a lot of different tasks, like Mm -hmm. LPS measurements, they've been cleaning the towers and all the other things the robot does. I think that's going to be the stumbling block is how to do this in difficult situations.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be up there in 15 meters per second in my mind, because then you start to get some warble and some different things going on. If the if that coating, depending on the pot time of whatever coating they're using, you might get some some leaks, some drips, some some waves Rebels. in it. It's, it's, Plus, it's yeah.
2: a good yeah. time to be generating electricity when it's 15 meters <laughs> yeah. per second winds, right? So, yeah, um, you wouldn't want to de- assume that leading edge protection isn't ever an an urgent repair, or it shouldn't be unless they've uh, really let it go too far. We're
0: going to see a lot more robots that do similar things over the next year or two.
2: Mm. I think it's really interesting because like five years ago, everybody, uh, all the manufacturers were, well, they probably still are, but working really hard on better leading edge protection that wouldn't need to be repaired or replaced. And so I just think it's interesting in terms of technology development, how, you know, the the path that seems it seemed obvious back then that we needed better um, coatings for leading edge protection, um, but it turned out to be easier <laughs> to get um, robots to uh, be periodically to replacing play. the re- uh, yeah improving it. Um, and it's interesting too with the um, the icephobic coatings because their weakness has always been that they just don't last on the um, on the blades very long. So if you can, you know. Reapply that every year without having to send a team up there, then that seems like a m- much more likely um, technology improvement to happen than you know. Like because I, I was, I spent a, a decade waiting for better, <laughs> better icephobic co- coatings to occur that you know could actually do what they said that they would do. Right. This seems like a much much faster path to seeing isophobic coatings that actually perform some sort of function.
1: Absolutely. And I think that the LEP conversation as well, Rosemary, like what some of the manufacturers and aftermarket companies have found is no matter how good of a coating you make, it's only as good as the technician applying it. So when these people are making, you know, it's it's tough to get it right every time. And I think part of the leaning is, is now that we can get robots to do it, if the robots can do it. Effectively, efficiently, in a robotic manner, as as should be, but, you know, you're thinking car factory weld type thing versus a a hand weld. Uh, that the coatings will just last longer, um, innately, right? But I don't. That's that's the idea.
0: Our wind turbine farm of the week is Elk Wind in Elk Township, Iowa, which is if you know your Iowa, it's it's in the corner of <laughs> Iowa, Wisconsin, and Illinois. So it's right in Joel's neck of that's the woods. Right. Right. Uh, Elkwin was commissioned in 2011 and at 42.5 megawatts. It's a good sized farm. Uh, it's now owned by Greenbacker Renewable Energy. Uh, 17 turbines, and they're looking to repower. Good for them. Uh, they have 2.5 megawatt Nordex machines, but they're going to repower with GE. There you go. Uh, and they're going to put bigger blades on. And I haven't seen what the power rating increase is going to be. Or maybe they're just going to put keep it at 2.5 megawatts and just put bigger blades on. But they're going to have 127-meter diameter blades when they currently have 100-meter diameter blades. So nice job, everybody out there. It's good to see a wind farm repowering, right? It's about that 12-year time span mm-hmm. at right, the right time, being smart, taking taking care of the uh, tax credits, I'm sure. <laughs> Great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely! congratulations, everybody out there in Elk Wind Farm, Elk Township, Iowa. In July of 22, uh, New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced uh, the third offshore wind solicitation for two gigawatts of offshore wind. Well, those bids are are rolling in, and uh, we got a, got a brief snapshot of, of what everybody's proposing. Orsted and Eversource uh, on their South Fork Wind and Sunwater. Sunrise Wind uh, are combining for a little over gigawatts. What they're proposing, uh, South Fork Winds in process at the moment. They'll have about 130 megawatts, and then Sunrise Wind is have about 900 megawatts, which be all finished in late 2025. Uh, so that's th- those are two of the wind farms that are proposing to to move into New York, Equinor and BP with their Beacon Wind Two a project which is going to complement the already existing Empire 1 and 2 and Beacon Wind 1 projects. So Beacon Wind 2 is a 1.3 gigawatt proposal. Uh, The Equinor and BP are also proposing as part of this package to create manufacturing plants for cable components and wind turbine components uh, like blades and nacelles in the state of New York. So they're saying if we get chosen to provide power, we're going to build some manufacturing plants in New York State. RWE and National Grid with their Community Offshore Wind Project, which is a 1.3 gigawatt gigawatt offshore project, uh, is combined with GE. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but they're saying that GE will build a blade plant and a nacelle plant uh, outside Albany, New York, which is upstate New York, and could also bring in some steel fabrication into Orange County. Joel, you know that from Orange County Chopper, the motorcycle— yeah. Uh, television show is right there. Right. So it's a big steel <laughs> area. And then in Inver- Venergy and Energy Re with their leading light wind project. Uh, it's a 2.1 gigawatt proposed project. Uh, there's, they signed an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, with the local trade unions. As part of their bid package, so everybody's going down a different avenue yep. in terms of what the, the the highlights are. It sounds like manufacturing is part of it. That makes a lot of sense. To GE's up the street, mm-hmm. uh, but also hooking up with the trade units. So there is going to be a lot of negotiations in the back rooms of the Capitol up in Albany, New York, deciding who out of these projects are going to get to deliver power. The the weird thing is, Joel, uh, you know, you and I were talking before the show here a lot of these companies paid a lot of money for these leases off the coast of new york oh yeah if they can't deliver power where are they going to go what's yeah. the next step
1: yeah i mean you're looking at here with all of these projects combined that you just mentioned a little over nine gigawatts of possible power right and the state right. of the state of new york saying we'll take a, a minimum of two. Well, oh, that's that's so much less is twenty percent, you know, ish of the of of the power that could be created. Now, did they put a cap on it? So, does New York say we're not taking any more than X? Because I don't I don't think they put a cap on it, right?
0: No. So they could actually. I think they could go higher. I think the question right. is, where are they going to onshore it? Right. That's that's usually the big dilemma. yeah where are they so where so the cable in. So what we were talking about was.
1: How can you, you know, this is all part of the New York bite auction. So saying these companies all yep. put out mm-hmm. over four four $4.7 billion in leasing and permit bids to get the option or the opportunity to go and develop these farms. And it blew my mind reading this going, they did that without even knowing where their offtake was going to be and where it's going to go to. Uh, right. it just it, the, the risk of this thing is, is wild to me. Uh, I can't, I can't, I wouldn't be able to stomach it if I was one of the people on that big team, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night going, man, you know, we just put out X billion dollars or how many hundreds of millions of dollars to get the opportunity to do this. We don't even know who's going to take the power. That's crazy. Uh, I mean, right in, on that East coast you do have, of course, New York is there. You could ship some to Rhode Island. You could ship some to Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, uh, you know, quite a ways down the coast of Delaware, if you wanted to. So there's places that can take it, but that it, th- those things have massive implications on cost and where you're going to come ashore, right? So if you're if you're having to run yes. an ex- export cable to Staten Island versus having to run it to Providence, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> millions and millions and millions of dollars in difference. So how how can you have a cost model built around these things that and not know where the power is going to go? Or even have an idea of a PPA lined up. So I, you know, that's one part to unpackage here. The other part is lots of different flavors of carrots being hung in the state of New York right now. Depending, yes. depending on who's going to bite and how it's going to go. Uh, a lot of different, like you said in here, there's a lot of different tactics. Uh, getting in with the trade unions is a great one. Um, I believe, in my opinion, building a factory is an even better one. Uh, because then you're you're putting a permanent or a semi-permanent, we hope permanent um, facility there uh, to bolster some long-term jobs and you're gonna end up using union labor anyways for something offshore there, whether it's painting or electrical union. so you're gonna do that. so um, yeah, yeah, quite a, quite a bit moving here, a lot a lot of moving parts.
0: Well, this comes in at the same time when Avant Grid is fighting with the state of Massachusetts and has gone to court now, state court, to argue that the purchase power agreement is null and void, that that process wasn't valid, and and wants to stop that process. And so Avant Grid and the Commonwealth Wind are going to be looking for another place to <laughs> deliver that power if they're going to actually go forward with the project. This is a huge risk. It, when we talk about 30 gigawatts by 2030, we have to have a place to deliver it. And it seems (laughs) like at the moment that we don't have the roadways or pathways into the states or the states are going to hold them somewhat hostage uh, and extract out hundreds of millions of dollars in in essentially payments, which is what it is, Mm -hmm. uh, to either secure jobs or create factories or whatever they want to do. So is it just the highest bidder wins? Is that where we're at right now?
1: I think so. Um Oof. but that yeah that's a that's a that's a dangerous path to walk. And with yeah, the P- and with the in with the, the the PPA agreement uh, argument we're we're also looking at down the coast in Virginia the dominion issue down there as well with PPA prices right. and and the guarantees. So 30 by 30 uh, gigawatts of offshore wind is we're looking at 9 here and the state is only saying they're going to take 2 at a minimum. Okay, that's that's low numbers. Now we have we have you know the Virginia stuff coming in, so you're up to that. We get we could say in the vicinity of fifteen gigawatts sitting on the East Coast, ready. Off at of the southern, you know, right. in the in the Gulf of Mexico, we don't know exactly what that auction is going to bring. Um, it's not going to be fifteen. It's going to be in the more in the two range, two gigawatts maybe. And then off the West Coast, you're four or five. So you're looking at. Even right now, without any more auctions, we're only at 20 gigawatts, 22, something of that sort, uh, but still not understanding what the PPA agreements look like and or what states are even going to take the power into their grid is is very troublesome right. being February of 23 uh, with only six turbines in the water as we speak.
0: I've been chewing on this all week, actually. Uh, Because the last couple of weeks on the podcast, it seems like everything has been really negative. We're just not moving at the speed which uh, was intended, which is being publicized. And when you start to get into the the depths of these projects, you realize, man, we are really, really far behind. Mm -hmm. I want to keep this light and positive on the podcast because there are some opportunities there, clearly, uh, to speed this whole effort up. I just haven't heard them. You, Joel, uh, that, you know, here's here's a way we can speed it up. We're going to get some regulations cleared out. We're going to find the pathways. We're going to work the communities to get the power on shore. These are the processes we're going to use. We're going to move this forward. It's not like that. When you dig through the news articles every week, you realize they're, they're just getting bogged down in the courts. I've,
1: I've got a new That's process. I think i got a process, Alan, and I've got it figured out. So if anybody uh, listening to the podcast has ever heard of Mattress Mac from Houston— Yes. So, so what Mattress Mac does is he says, if you buy a a, a mattress, a Sealy Posturpedic, whatever, and it costs over three thousand dollars, and the Astros win the World Series, you'll get it for free. So he hedges that bet by placing a ten million dollar bet on the Astros to win. So what we need to do is go to Vegas and get one of the casinos to open up a line on 30 by 30 about gigawatts of offshore wind. And then we get all of these other manuf- all these developers to hedge their bet by placing uh, that we're not going to hit 30 by 30 in Vegas. And we'll we'll protect, it's we'll like protect the finances. Short. That's right. We'll protect the finances that way. I've got to figure it out.
0: Well, it's, it's one way to do it. I, I. I I am looking for the positive light in every news story and I'm not seeing it right now. So I'm going to start talking about onshore wind. Cause at least I know onshore wind in the Midwest is happening for the most part, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Iowa, Nebraska, go, go, go.
1: Yes, sir. Lightning is
3: an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS, so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit WeatherGuardWind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today.
0: As part of the RWE and National Grid bid for the New York offshore power, uh, they're working with GE, and GE has somewhat committed, based upon how many wind turbines would be involved, to create two factories in New York. These factories would be just south of Albany, New York, on the Hudson River. So the the, the thing, the goal is, is that they take these blades and the cells and put them on a barge and move them down the Hudson River to the offshore wind area. And the, the two areas they're also proposing are not that far from where the GE facility is in Schenectady, New York. And then there's a corporate R&D facility in this unit. So all, all these places are within probably an hour of one another. So the, the blade facility, and this is the interesting piece, the blade facility they're considering building would be for Hali-Aid, uh, 12 megawatt plus turbines, but it'd be an LM wind power facility. So we had talked about LM being the offshore wind power blade designer and maybe moving the onshore blade designs to TPI. This would kind of fall in line with that. And this, then GE would then keep hold of the nacelle business and have a GE nacelle factory right next door to the LM wind power blade facility. Now they're talking about several hundred jobs, roughly a thousand jobs, 800 to a thousand jobs between the two facilities. Plus, it would create a whole bunch of construction jobs, obviously, probably like a thousand yeah. Yeah. Uh, construction jobs to get these. You factories built in, but Joel, let me ask you this, and Rosemary, because Rosemary's been in an LM factory before. Yeah, yeah. How quickly can you build? How quickly can you build an LM wind power blade facility that's making twelve megawatt plus blades? <laughs> that's you, Rosemary. What do you think?
2: Well, I don't know. The only one that I saw happen was the first, and so I mean, building the factory itself wasn't the the difficult thing. It was, um, yeah, figuring out how to make a, a blade of of that size. There's so many different. Um, like, it, it sounds really similar. You know, we used to have 70-meter all-glass blades. Now we've got 108-meter all-glass blade. You know, what's, what's the difference? You just stretch it out. But there's just like a bunch of... Things that you might might not be immediately obvious that make it quite difficult. So, I mean, one that any anybody problem anyone's going to have is that you are going to have to increase the thickness a lot of the the fiberglass. Um, and normally, you don't make really really thick laminates because the curing um, is difficult. Uh, you end up you might get you know some internal stresses or or something happening um, if it's really thick. You can try to do it in two goes, but then you end up, you know, obviously with a lot longer time and an extra process where something can go wrong, um, you know, when you're trying to uh, have a, a second a second layup on top of a first one. And then there's just other stuff like, okay, it's really big, the root diameter is way bigger than, um, you know, a human arm span. So whereas we used to, you know, lay glass in by hand, now, you know, it's uh, it's falling down and we can't reach it or, you know, just details like, mm-hmm. like that um, that happen from a really – big big uh, blade but in terms of the factory itself i mean it's still just a huge big building but now instead of being 80 meters long it's got to be you know 120 meters long and um another big thing is the height of it because you need to be able to rotate the blade onto its side um so you can work on all aspects of it so it needs to be really high um but um the ceiling needs to be really high but I, i don't think that those take particularly long time so i yeah, I think they could put it out there pretty quick, but then they're going to have to get personnel in that, um, you know, these blades are harder to make than your average, <laughs> yeah, 70-meter blade. So they're going to have to get a really good team there, and that will probably be the the harder thing to do quickly.
1: So here's a question for you, Rosemary, from your time uh, with the with the LM team. The, would the factory in Gaspé be the other option? If this factory isn't created, Will the, do they have the capacity to make them up there in Quebec?
2: They'd have to make a big, bigger building. Um, and so okay. the. In the past, I mean, they, they've been doing that all the time because, you know, these factories started when blades were, I don't know, so maybe gas-based started when blades were 30 metres long or, or something. I can't remember the exact so year. Keep... And they would always yeah. just, you know, just extend it. But then the problem is when they get so big that they're so wide, then you can't just extend the length anymore. You're going to have to also the extend height. the height, which is not so easy to do. Um, so, yeah, and it also depends on on the land available because you don't necessarily just have a spare mm-hmm. 50 metres to um, – um, whack a, a whack an extra bit onto the end of your factory so I, it wouldn't be simple to just go and and do it in gas bay that's for sure
1: yeah I'm, my, that's my mind is thinking okay if these aren't built because there's some risk there for ge as well right they've got some the patent issues hanging out there right now where they might not there might be a time here shortly where the the haliad model in the u.s might not be something that can get installed right so they've Mm -hmm. why would they build a factory if they're only two wind farms that they can supply with with blades as it sits today uh the other the other side of that is is if they do build that factory there i know that corner of albany within an hour hour and a half radius of there would love those jobs there's a lot of small communities there that could benefit greatly from from having ge uh put another facility in there so that would be
0: fantastic where would they get the molds from and all the tooling would they come from europe how would they get them to America?
2: The molds yeah. are easier now than they used to be. Well, when I started working at LM, the mold was really um, big. Um, it was definitely the critical path for any new new blade because it would take six months to get the mold. So within six months of starting to make a blade, right. you're not making any changes to the, the external geometry. Um, but now the 3D printing um, parts of molds, and they can get it done a lot faster if they want to. So, um, yeah, I I think that they would be making them some somewhere nearby. It's a, it's a guess, but yeah, that would be my guess. <laughs> Joel, the only the
0: biggest three D printing facility I know of is was part of NASA for a while. I don't know if we have any of the facilities to make something. There's one. You don't need to make prints. it in one
2: piece, though. You and Just you don't pieces. you don't no, print right. the mold you print you're probably going to print a mold to make the mold if that that makes sense um right no that's right right
1: there's a company out there right now and i don't remember where they're based out of that has a an active 3d printer with heat set thermoplastic that can make like a 30 foot boat so if and that's just it's it's a it's a tear it down put it in a connex box and you could rebuild it like i don't think that's a that's a huge
0: issue let me give you the project timeline based on what I'm seeing so far from other projects in that area. Yep. Two years to get the environmental review done. Minimum. Probably so with I'm... a lawsuit in the middle of it, right? <laughs> another yeah. year or so t- to get the to get the building up-ish. Yep. And another year to get, get it loaded with the tooling and the cranes and the office furniture and all the stuff. 27. And then I think you're looking at year five before it goes live. So 27. Oh, I think you're talking...
2: We don't know yeah. where we are in that. Though. If you're announcing it, they're not just starting to think about it and now they're going to figure out what they need to do and what permission they need. They, they might already be two or three years into that by the time that they've announced it. You don't think so?
0: No, and, and, and at least I dug around in the records to see if they had been uh, working on the environmental part of it. It doesn't look like it. I haven't seen It doesn't mean they haven't been doing it behind the scenes, but I haven't seen anything locally that's been talking to it. But that's that's just the way the projects go out here. So
2: why announce yeah. it now?
0: It it's going to be twenty twenty seven twenty eight. I because they're they're trying to get New York to buy into the power right? that, and that that and keeping part, up with the
1: Joneses, mm. right? They've they've yeah. unless they yeah. unless they're making moves, announcing it's a it's a marketing ploy, mm. right? It's corporate communications. Sure. Oh yeah. PR stuff. Uh, hey hey hey! Offshore wind is good. We're going to give all this jobs here, and and if they're doing it. Because everybody else is doing it, Invenergy's doing it, RWE's doing it, Econor's doing it. Everybody's throwing all this stuff yeah. out there right now. Um, it depends on what what carrot gets bit.
0: I agree. And do you think that the, that New York is going to accept any project that's using a non GE turbine?
1: If they're building them, depends where they're building them at.
0: You think you think it's going to make a difference?
2: We've already seen some other other companies announcing um, facilities in New York, in Virginia. Oh, not in New York.
0: Virginia Siemens Gamesa was talking about building a blade plant in Virginia mm. for Commonwealth, okay.
2: mm-hmm.
0: but I think in New York I, I'd be hard pressed to think another manufacturer is going to plant themselves in GE territory, which is what
2: it would. <laughs> but be. do you think that that New Yorkers are so emotional that they would only only consider yes. a a, a GE turbine? Really?
1: I think, think GE has the political clout to keep people out as well.
0: And if GE renewables plants or GE Vernova. Plants their new headquarters not in Paris but in Albany, New York. You can pretty much be sure GE is going to get a lot of wind turbine orders from that, mm-hmm. because the state can can make that happen. I, it's just my personal opinion. We'll see what happens. Uh, I but if they have the opportunity to make make GE wind turbines pop up in the water, they will. EBADrola is selling off large portions of their company, or at least discussing it. They've been doing it the last several months, but Ibadrola has a number of sites in the U.S. which are supposedly up for sale. And ebadrola has been trying to raise cash and offload older assets so they can get involved in some newer businesses, uh, which we had seen from Duke Energy doing something very similar. So, Joel, I think this is a a new way forward that the company's been around for a while that have a lot of renewable assets that they may have maxed their value right now because of all the chaos in Europe. Yeah, it
1: all depends on available capital, right? So I think that why we're seeing part of this, you know, Philip Tataro would be a good guy to ask about this as well from the economic standpoint. But I think part of the reason we're seeing this happen with these bigger players is capital's hard to get right now. Because interest rates are so high and all this True. stuff, so so if you can if you can dump some of your interest payments, so say Iberdrola has a wind farm that they they built two years ago, and it, they're still paying interest on it and, and making that loss. If they can pay that off, uh, get rid of the note on it, and then take the free capital that's left, and then go put it into something else to develop, that's that's smart move, right? And I know one of the bullet points i yeah. are staring at here from our notes today is. They sold 49% of some Spanish renewable business to Norway's Sovereign Wealth Fund. If I was selling anything to any Sovereign Wealth Fund, it would be the Norwegian one and I would feel great about it because I know they're <laughs> going to pay. Uh, they've got money. So yeah, I think yes. it's st- strategically it's a great move by Iberdrola. I mean it, when we did a, a rundown of the most valuable global – wind businesses uh, a month or two ago, Iberdrola was worth 33 billion at the time. It was number two behind Orsted at 77. So their Iberdrola has their, they, they do business under a, a lot of different names. You may, you know, if you're in Brazil and you see Neo Energia, that's Iberdrola. They've got a lot right. of, a lot of entities around, um, and a ton of projects. So if they can kind of look at their portfolio, manage it in a, in a smart way by looking at the economics of each wind farm and what the, what the interest is costing them and how much uh, capital is av- free capital is available after they can dump it, smart move. Um, and then they'll, they'll turn right around and in- invest that into more renewables. So they're doing their part uh, for the global energy transition, uh, in my opinion.
0: Right. Isn't is that built into the business model, though? You have to ch- turn over turn assets burn. to yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah, turn and burn, right? Yeah. Well, it looks like they're also uh, – putting On the block, six onshore wind farms in Romania and Hungary. It's about 250 megawatts worth of assets, and they want 300 million euros for it. So it's a little over a million euros per megawatt. Does that sound right? I um, think that's yeah. what the price of wind turbines is, right?
1: Probably. Yeah, yeah, because it's a, what are we trading euro right now? 1.1, 1.09 to a dollar ish. Yeah. So 300 is $330 million, uh, 238 megawatts. It's less than a 1.5. It's like 1.3 million per megawatt. And, but, but when we talk about the price per megawatt, we're only talking about the price for the turbines. We're not talking about interconnects, transmission, uh, civil work, anything like that. So I think that to be honest, if these are good, well, if these are good producing assets with a lot of life left, left in them, it's a good price for them. I'm, I'm not an m and you guy in you know, uh, corporate finance and in renewables, but my dumb armchair math tells me that it's not a bad price. Um, I also don't know what the, the, the dollar per kilowatt hour, euro per kilowatt hour goes for in Romania and Hungary. So uh, I can't tell you that.
3: Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system, which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet. And it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co.
0: Well, Rosemary, Nucor, uh, which is the largest steel producer in the United States, has announced that it is going to manufacture sustainable steel plate, especially for the U.S. offshore wind industry. I know you're excited about that. Uh, So (laughs) Nucor's new sustainable heavy-gauge steel plate uh, product for the offshore wind sector is called Elcyon. Now, I assume that's some Greek god or something of the sort, Uh, but it's the only steel plate in offshore wind that's actually melted and manufactured in the United States. And the little trick is, and this is where I want to get your thoughts on, it's uh, they're they're making the Celsian steel uh, from 90% uh, recycled steel, and they're using an electric arc furnace to melt it and recast it, which takes about eighty percent less uh, energy than a typical global glass furnace. So I think they're using their <laughs> the recycling effort to show that they're using less energy to create this steel. But they're not doing they're not actually making steel, right? They're just re- essentially recycling it. Is that is that what they're doing?
2: Yeah. Well, then it's um it's not primary steel anyway. It doesn't come from iron ore. Um. So that's. That's right. great. And of course you should do that where you can. And I mean, already before anybody cared about climate change, the economics were there that you would recycle um all the steel that you could get your all the steel scrap you could get your hands on. So um that's kind of already being done. You don't need to um you don't need to have any incentive to recycle more steel because it's it's already it's already being recycled. Um, So I guess that I I would think that the comparison between um, electric arc furnace steel and blast furnace steel is kind of an apples and oranges comparison because, yeah, of course, it uses a lot less energy to make um, steel from Steel scrap than it does to make it from iron ore um, and i did look up um there's a report from the steel manufacturers association that find found that across the us eaf uh, made steel uses 70 percent less emissions than a blast blast furnace steel so um, so they're doing slightly better than that. I'm actually surprised you couldn't do even better than they have by um, using mainly renewable electricity. I would have thought you could do better and get, get more emissions reductions. So I think the big story here is that they're, you know, it will be US made for US projects because until now they haven't had that right kind of steel. So you've had to bring it in. Um, so I, th- I think it's a good story, but the, yeah, comparison with um, blast furnace is a bit of a red herring. It's not really that relevant.
1: The the, the, big, the big one there that you said, Rosemary, is U.S. made steel for U.S. wind projects. That qualifies the wind project for ITC, which is another part of the IRA bill. Bingo. Thirty percent. Thank Thirty percent tax write off on the project.
2: Yeah, there's there's for the story. A U.S. made product. And if they want to reduce yep. the emissions further, then you know, get some get some wind power in in their factories as well as supplying wind, wind power. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can get make it nice and circular. Is there wind? Is there wind? Much? There's not much wind in
1: Kentucky, so I don't know if it, solar. No. So there's, we could do solar down there, but as far as powering by renewables.
0: So, yeah, I, w- I was going to raise this issue, uh, which uh, they announced this facility is in Kentucky, not New York, not Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. not Illinois. It's in Kentucky, right? And I, I think we're seeing the major heavy industries move south. and. Alcoa is in that area. I worked at Alcoa in in Indiana for a summer, and there's a lot of aluminum smelters up and down sort of that area, Kentucky, Indiana, Ohio. Uh, And putting a steel plant down there, I think, makes sense because it's probably – the energy prices are probably less there, especially if you're using an electric arc furnace. You want to go someplace where electricity prices are low. Yeah,
1: You also got some transportation there too, right? Cause there's a, that's, that's three rivers areas, there. like there's the Ohio river and some right. other things that all join up right there. So.
0: Yeah. It's smart move. I think it's a really smart move. It's just, it, I would say somewhat disappointing that we are talking about offshore wind again, you would think that the steel factory would be somewhat near where the offshore wind turbines are going to be built, which are going to be New York and Virginia. Yeah. Kentucky is not that close. There's Last some- time I checked a map, it's not particularly close.
1: Not a whole lot of wind energy there. So here's another thing to think about, too. Mm-hmm. Kentucky, parts parts of Kentucky are coal country. As the coal plants shut yes. down, the, that area of the country is going to need jobs. So if they're building a new $1.7 billion steel mill in Brandenburg, Kentucky, those are jobs driven by renewable energy yeah, oh yeah. that aren't directly renewable energy that can put some of those coal workers back to work. That's fantastic.
0: And Nucor, if went to school, I was in college in the '90s. God, I hate to say that, but I was in college in the '90s. And one of the one of the you know key pieces it was at the time it was U.S. and Japan uh, fighting with one another in regards to steel. And Nucor was the American savior at the time that they had a new processes and different ways of thinking about manufacturing steel in an old industry. So Nucor. Um, ha- lived. It survived uh, in a very difficult time. So now it seems like they're still out there doing some good work. It's good Good to see. All right. American Clean Power is, uh, is saying that U.S. offshore wind was going to be built by non-U.S. companies in an article by Claire Richer, uh, director of offshore wind, American Clean Power, uh, in an article in workboat.com. And I believe Claire Richer used to work for Senator Edward Markey from my great state of Massachusetts. Uh, I'm gonna, just going to quote a couple of lines out of this to get a sense of where this article is going. It says, quote, In the 1960s, the family-owned Louisiana-based Nolte Thorough Tugboat Company was racing across the Atlantic Ocean. The company's boat captains had had extensive experience laying cables and anchors for offshore oil and gas platforms in the Gulf of Mexico, and now their specialized skills were needed. Do the same for a new oil and gas industry in the North Sea. They worked alongside Norwegian boat captains who learned the skills and needed to help stand up an industry that would eventually turn Norway into an energy production powerhouse, increasing energy security for the West. Fast forward to 2022, European maritime companies are coming over to this side of the Atlantic to aid in the development of the United States' nascent offshore wind industry, reaching America's goal of deploying 30,000 megawatts, or 30 gigawatts, of offshore wind by 2030 will create up to 83,000 jobs and new opportunities for American mariners. Today, however, the U.S. only has seven turbines of offshore wind compared to Europe's over 5,800 turbines. So to catch up and quickly build a domestic manufacturing sector, we need to learn from the European experience, just as those Norwegian boat captains learn, anchor handling skills from Nolte Thoreau's Cajun captains. All right. So this is basically an editorial uh, from American Clean Power saying we're going to have non-U.S. companies heavily involved in offshore wind, and we're not going to make much of an effort to get American companies involved in the 30 by 30 effort. There's nothing in this article that says they're going to try to be training workers, nothing to be bringing U.S. ships into the sector, Nothing about uh, training technicians, nothing. Zippo. I mean, of, so of really disappointing in American clean power for this. Why? what is what is what? How is this helpful?
2: It's actually bizarre as well because you know the bulk of the jobs that are yeah. you know yeah technicians and skilled labor and that sort of thing. Why would you think that you would? you know, trucking thousands of Europeans to, to do that. I mean, are there thousands of Europeans that want to move for a job of that, that level? I mean, I know if I'm going to consider a cross-continental move, then it's going to be for, you know, like a, a pretty high-level role with a nice big pay packet. I'm not going to move for a job that I can just as easily get, you know, near my friends and family um, and, with, yeah, with every, everything that I like yeah. back home. So it just seems bizarre aside from like it, it'll just – it's obvious that it will never happen to that extent. Um, and then some of the stuff that she's saying is also obvious that it will happen that way, that, you know, there will be need to be some knowledge transfer from people who have done it in Europe. It would be crazy to to start again, sure. reinvent the wheel, have all of the you know failures that Europe experienced in the 90s, have them in the US now. That would that would be incredibly stupid. So. Of course, there'll be some knowledge transfer, but it will be you know key personnel come over and um, uh, share their their lessons with their American colleagues and um, probably help train some some workers and then go home again. That's what that's what I would expect would be the, the bulk of the knowledge transfer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, this is a backup to their kind of a, their opinion or their statement along the what was, what was the name of it again, Alan? The American offshore worker fairness act or something of that sort of fairness yeah, yeah that the, that backed up that's uh, you know trying to close the loopholes in the jones act right so we know that we need a little bit of help mm-hmm. i don't believe we want to ship them over in bulk yeah. right so in, here in my mind if you're acp how about we put a plan together to train more of these workers we, we do not want to hold up the 30 by yes. 30 i completely agree with that but let's do something that will help uh, so so, if you're – say you're an American company that's trying to get into wind and you're going to do some insulation and some uh, uh, SOV work and some maintenance, how about – I know – oh, here's one for you. I know Crowley and SVACT. SVACT, Danish, a big SOV ship company. They're building some SOVs and stuff over here to do this. How about Crowley and SVACT get together right now and ship some Americans over and, and man some of the SOVs that are working in the European waters right now just to get them trained up? Yep. So that when we're over, we come back, we're ready. We have some people that have some knowledge from those operating, you know, extremes over there. We don't we don't foresee to have North Sea extremes uh, in our waters, but then they can see how those operations work. Um, like I said, we know we're going to need some knowledge transfer, but it, I don't believe that yes. we want to start uh, signposting that it's going to be all people coming over to 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 man these vessels and these installation jack up rigs or however we're going to do it. But um, there is plenty of people over here that that have some of this knowledge as well. I mean, laying cables, laying cable. Uh, Americans have been doing that for a long time too. So the, the, right. the, yeah. the, the SVAX, the Crowleys, the Demes, the Bo Scalises, these, the, the Edison Schwest out of Louisiana, those guys that have been building ships and moving them around. Uh, who else is over? There's a, a bunch of great great vessel companies along the Gulf Coast that – have experience running jackets and platforms and all the stuff for that, Gulf, that Gulf Coast uh, oil and gas infrastructure. Let's get some of those people trained up and then have them at the ready because they're, they're gonna be in high demand.
0: Yeah, I, I don't understand why we're not connecting with uh, Louisiana, Texas, uh, Mississippi area mm-hmm. for some of this knowledge. It seems like we have 80% of what's needed right now to do offshore wind in America with mostly American workers and companies. It wouldn't take too much to get them trained up in the remaining 20% of just the techniques and the specifics of particular boats. Mm -hmm. I'm with you, Joel. Why are we not sending some these American companies to work with some of the Danish, Norwegian companies, French companies, wherever that are doing this right now? So we're ready to go because if you think you're going to – if offshore wind is going to be in such great demand, like they're talking about worldwide, what's the chance you're going to be able to pull – a significant number to America to do a 30 by 30 project when they're scattered. Denmark's not that big of a place.
1: If you are if you are a company right now that is bidding on the O&M contracts for these new wind farms that are going to be installed and you can bring to your bid, "Oh, by the way, 20% of our workforce has been trained in the North Sea already." You're going to win that bid. As long as as long as you've got the vessels to back it up, you're going to win that bid. That's the way I'd look at it.
0: Shouldn't American Clean Power be pushing that?
1: I would think so. But but it highlights the disconnect in American Clean Power, right? There's a disconnect in American Clean Power between the people that are doing work in the renewable energy sector on the ground, and even in the in the in the the, the white collar engineering offices, and those that have worked for American Clean Power that are sitting in D.C.
0: Definitely, it feel, it definitely feels like that. I'm sure someone from American American Clean Power is going to call me this week and give me an earful. I'm Totally happy to be willing to listen to let's it. have a conversation you know, we'd love to have him on the podcast yeah let's yeah. put him on the podcast and explain what's going on because it was just watching from the outside it's a little confusing that's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast thanks for listening please give us a 5 star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News our weekly newsletter and check out Rosemary's YouTube channel Engineering with Rosie and we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast